This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. Today's episode, we'll be talking with Sam Ramel, PE, PG, and he's a geotechnical engineer at AECOM. We're going to be focusing our talk on geotechnical engineering, of course, but we're going to be talking about tailings engineering. He's going to be talking about some of the intricacies, some of the challenges and opportunities, and also future trends in the industry. I'm your host, Jared Green, and I'm excited to be bringing you another episode of the Geotechnical Engineering Podcast. And with that, Let's get right into today's episode. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Tensar International. Here's a message from Tensar about their award-winning software, Tensar Plus, which is available to you at no cost. Check out Tensar Plus, the award-winning design software for construction professionals to design with geosynthetics and calculate their value on projects. Tensar Plus is simple to use with a powerful engineering system at its core. It leverages our decades of research and experience with soils all over the world, so you can count on your solutions working the first time, even in the most difficult conditions. Whether you're designing a crane pad or need to build a temporary road over muck, the cost, time, and carbon savings can be calculated, making comparison with alternatives simple. Specs. Reports and product data can be generated for your design. And training resources, research, and our third-party expert reviews are all provided conveniently in the software if needed. Usable both online and offline, the app is available in browser and on all major mobile platforms. Whatever you're working on, Tensar Plus is your toolbox for success. Sam, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Doing great, Jared. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit more about uh, why you went into geotechnical engineering and why did you decide to specialize in tailings engineering? Curious to hear what sparked the interest in the field and what led you to this unique but very important area of expertise. I think I actually kind of have a bit of a non-traditional intro into geotechnical engineering. So my bachelor's degree is actually in geology, which I got up at CU Boulder. Geology is a great degree and I'd recommend it to anyone, but it's a bit broad and it's a bit kind of hard to get a job right out of college, I would say, without some type of graduate degree in it. In my early 20s, I started applying at places I thought might hire geology majors and I happened to get hired on by a local contractor or consultant in Denver, just kind of doing soil testing at first, so backfill testing on residential sites, commercial sites. Then I was quickly moved over to geotechnical drilling. A lot of the money that they make, or sorry, the contracts that they get are like that, kind of high production, expansive soil investigations. I mean, expansive soil is pretty common around Denver. But I kind of quickly realized without any sort of engineering degree, this is probably where I'd kind of stop in geotech, at least at the firm I was at. So I actually went back to school and got into Colorado School of Mines and their geological engineering program and ended up getting a master's degree 
in geological engineering there. And at School of Mines, kind of this big push across the industry and in academia has been really a focus on tailings and a lot of these kind of like the sort of inactive facilities and kind of like lesser monitored and you know, lesser known facilities. And so my advisor at School of Mines had uh, quite a part to play in some work with, I think it was the Peruvian government and the school down in Peru to look at these mines. So he really wanted to focus his grad students on uh, working in tailings. And from there, I met a colleague who was also in the same degree program and she worked at AECOM and, and she spoke highly of her work in tailings engineering at AECOM. Eventually, I reached out to her and she ended up getting me a job at AECOM working in tailings engineering. Since then, I've been at AECOM about two years. It's just been a fascinating field and it seems like it's always changing and always coming up with new solutions to problems that we face. So we've got a mix of folks that uh, listen in, podcasts, I should say. So some folks are still in school, others are might even be in tailings. But tailings engineering requires a mix of technical prowess and also holistic thinking. Can you elaborate more on the intriguing or demanding projects you worked on and, and talk a little bit about how your tailings engineering knowledge played a vital role in the triumph for the project? And, you know, if you want a high level, tell us what that is, like what tailings in Because again, I, I mean, I know about it until I got to grad school, right? But it's because of where I grew up. So if you could walk us through that, that would be great. I can kind of take us a step back with kind of like what I was talking about with this industry push to understand a lot of these um, facilities that we see, you know, all across the world. So tailings engineering, um, mainly it's looking, you know, on the basic level, it's a dam safety engineering, very much like what we'd expect from water dams in terms of looking at their stability, their liquefaction potential, similar, you know, a lot of overlap between the two. Difference between, you know, building kind of a civil dam and building a TSF, a tailing storage facility, would be the fact that generally, you know, if we're in a low seismically active region or we have favorable conditions, we're generally constructing the tailings facilities out of the tailings themselves. So the embankment Generally, we see the coarser fraction of the tailings. So think here in Colorado, we have the Great Sand Dunes National Park, kind of this fine sand. That's the the coarser portion of the tailings. We call it a coarse tailings or a tail sand. Depending on the site, usually use a, what we call a cyclone or centrifuge. That's pretty much what it does. It separates out the particles. And so you build the embankment out of the coarser fraction. You know, if we're using that that cyclone, there's other methods as well. And then kind of the overflow, what, what would be the finer portions, more of like a silt size material or clay material will go back into the impoundment. So you think in a water dam, it would be the reservoir. Well, instead of the reservoir, it's the finer fraction of the tailings. So a lot of these tailings facilities were constructed, you know, not with the geotechnical know-how that we have today. They're usually put up by operators. And a lot of these large mining companies, they've kind of formed through a series of mergers and acquisitions. So they, when they, you know, take on another company or they, you know, expand their portfolio, they're taking on the inactive facilities and the legacy facilities of these previous companies that they took on. So there's a lot of unknowns with a lot of these inactive facilities. Recently, there have been some highlights of these inactive facilities, or even actually active facilities, if you look at the ones in Brazil, that have made the news, unfortunately, um, because of poor engineering, because of poor practices. So there's been a global push across the industry to basically analyze and investigate all of these facilities that fall under large tailings facilities that have some consequences and some risk. And so there's been a global push called the Global Industry Standard of Tailings Management. Our main client, which is a large mining company in the Western US, has really taken this to heart 
and has really made it a priority that any tailings facility that they think there is a population at risk immediately needs to be investigated and analyzed to ensure its geotechnical stability. And if it's found that it's less stable than we would like, immediately be repaired and mitigated. They've been quite on it. So I kind of go into my career working in, uh, I started in foundation engineering. And like I mentioned previously, here in Denver, we have ex- a large problem with expansive soils. So you would like to be able, when you do a foundation repair, to go to the foundation and know exactly how it's constructed, what construction processes are in place, how much backfill is beneath each footing. But generally, we don't get that. You know, you have a lot of unknowns when you're looking at these foundations. So I work pretty extensively in foundation repair, but mainly doing these um, kind of forensic investigations. So when I came to ADCOM, actually, it was a nice transition, albeit the scale was much larger from a, you know, a home residential foundation to a, a tailings facility, but I was kind of drawing these conclusions from unknowns. Uh, so a big project where we're kind of wrapping up now, but um, that was the main focus of 2022 was this large and active facility that was uh, an upstream raise. And so kind of going back to how I was talking about with the construction of these tailings facilities, you know, generally in the U.S. we see centerline facilities, upstream facilities. And upstream is where you construct the embankment kind of upward from the toe and then push the tailings or, you know, have the tailings blow back in the impoundment. Centerline, you're going straight up and generally you get a bigger embankment. So with this upstream facility, there wasn't much known about it. The only investigation that had been done was after its closure uh, in 2004, we had an investigation uh, just along the surface and along the crest of the embankment. The reason we didn't have much data was because to kind of promote the stability of this facility, they had taken large amounts of shot rock from the adjacent mine pit and armored the slope, which is good from a geotechnical standpoint. I mean, we always want to see rock fill. You're not really going to get an undrained response from this you know, rock fill material, but it does make it very hard to investigate. CPTs that are really our friend and one of our you know most powerful tools in the tailings world, and you can't really push a cone through you know boulders and large blocks. So we partnered with a drilling contractor, and they actually had a sonic CPT rig. So it was a rig that could use sonic drilling techniques through the rock fill, so we could analyze the rock fill material through sonic coring and SPTs and then case the hole down once we got into the underlying tailings material. We were able to push cones throughout the TSF, so along the Bigfoot slopes, near the toe, all on different portions along the crest, and install just a litany of uh, vibrating wire piezometers in this dam, which previously had a few piezometers, they were all open well, to really understand the pore pressures throughout the TSF. We were then able to target certain layers of what we saw in our cone signatures during the mud rotary drilling phases and take Shelby tubes of these kind of softer layers. But when I say soft, this wasn't a generally like a normal you'd see in a tailings facility, like fairly low tip resistance. This had a lot of magnetite in it. So we were getting densities exceeding like 150 PCF. So we actually ended up crumpling a lot of Shelby's, which is not good from a sampling point of view, but it was actually quite nice to see when you pull a Shelby out and like, these things are dense. This has a low void ratio. This is something we want to see. After that, big thing with the GISCM is basically the mining company will hire a consultant, that'd be us at AECOM, and then we'll perform the work and you know come up with our conclusions and recommendations. They'll also hire on a third-party reviewer, which is generally either a consultant or someone in academia, kind of the two main fields we see, to review our work, to ensure that we're meeting the standards and ensure 
that the work we performed has been up to the standard that they would expect for these dams. And we're testing it based on very large scale earthquake events. You know, we're performing 2D site responses on it. And obviously kind of the final you know, cherry on top would be the slope stability based on all the findings of what we saw. And so, you know, what went from being an unknown facility and having not much information on it, we were able to draw a lot of conclusions and uh, essentially get this dam pretty much a safe closure there from a geotechnical standpoint, there's a few things that they'll have to, to finish out. But we basically showed that beyond any reasonable doubt, this facility is, is safe. This facility just needs to be continuously monitored through the pisometers we installed. And this facility uh, meets the global standard that we need to have for tailings facilities. You said that that was like the whole of 2022? Yeah. So we performed the investigation in early 2022. Actually, it was about April is when we started uh, the investigation. There was a big push to get this facility wrapped up because populations that lived directly below it. And so the big thing with GISTM was to any dam where we saw a huge risk at population at risk, which is, you know, risk analyses is a huge part of analyzing these tailings facilities. They immediately needed to be analyzed and they immediately, if, if they are analyzed and something were to arise, immediately work would need to be done. Ones that are, you know, without the population at risk are still being analyzed. We're actually working kind of on a couple other inactive facilities in the area, but not at the um, breakneck speed of a one-year turnaround on on that. I think that was actually a nine-month turnaround or so on, from getting the sonic in the ground to actually presenting to the ITRB. A lot of work from a lot of people, too, in a short amount of time. Definitely. I did the bulk of the geotechnical work that I was assisted and basically the project was managed by the engineer record team at AECOM. You know, it was a very collaborative effort on a project. Now, when you're navigating these tailings engineering projects, I mean, that means you have to grapple with intricate soil dynamics, site intricacies and the like. What are some of the recurring hurdles that you've encountered in this domain? And how do you approach devising innovative solutions? With geotech, it's really easy to overlook the fact that we're using, you know, essentially like a two inch cone in the case of a tail, you know, a CPT or shoot like a six to eight inch hollow stem auger to characterize a massive site. It's an emphasis on, you know, whatever tools we have in our geotechnical toolbox, we need to use them. And so luckily in the tailings world, you know, we have really great clients who are willing to help us out and willing to give us the tools that we need to investigate these facilities and understand the scale of these projects and what we're trying to accomplish by using such small tools for investigation. So, you know, these are huge facilities. Our active facility, I do a lot of work on, it's a nearly three mile walk around the perimeter of this, this embankment. So it's really just trying to understand that what you're doing is you're taking data from such a small subset and such a small amount of instrumentation and trying to apply it onto a macro scale. And so obviously there's going to be uncertainty in any of this, but really it does boil down to a probability game. I mean, if we're analyzing, you know, a 10,000 year earthquake event, which is generally the standard would be the average 10,000 year earthquake event for stability for these active and inactive facilities, that's a probability. We're taking seismology records, we're taking, you know, having seismologists look at uh, faults in the area, look at different probable ground motions, and then applying that based on how we've scaled previous earthquakes that we have understood and studied to this TSF. The recurring hurdle is the scale of the investigation relative to the scale of the actual facility is less than like 0.001% of the soil you're taking out. So I think we always need to keep that in mind and understand what the bigger picture is when we look at data. 
Yeah, when you start talking about risk mitigation and contract review and all that, it's like even with a robust exploration, you don't have a lot of data. So, yeah, and the conclusions you have to draw from it are, you know, you always err on the conservative side and you always bake in this level of conservatism. I wish we had like what the structural engineering guys have. They have steel beams that, you know, are this shear modulus, this tensile strength. We don't, we don't have that. So trying to work with that. Before we go on here, I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI provides expert prep courses and study resources designed to help you pass the FE and PE exams the first time. PPI's live online courses include hours of lectures, problem-solving demonstrations, exam strategy sessions, office hours, and a passing guarantee. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for FE and PE exam prep. And as the landscape of tailings engineering evolves, new methodologies and technologies surface. How do you stay abreast to these advancements and how has the awareness empowered you to tackle intricate projects more effectively? Yeah, so our understanding of TSFs is really evolving every day. I know you had uh, Scott Olson on the show, I think a few years back, and he's really looked a lot into residual strengths and you know he's incredibly active in publishing and providing new insights. And I think he's had a lot of his focus lately on tailings engineering. So, you know, a lot of the papers we look at and we review, you know, obviously you know, have classical soil mechanics texts that apply very well to tailings, but also we do our kind of our own subset, you know, tailings that are very angular. They're a little bit different than what we would generally expect of maybe like an alluvial soil. So kind of going back to what I've talked about earlier with this big push in the industry and in academia to really greatly understand these facilities and kind of the, the soil mechanics of the tailings. We're really trying to stay up to date. So, you know, tailings is really good about having, uh, we have tailings and mine waste every year, which is a big conference. It was in Denver last year. I think it's going to be in Vancouver this year. And we have people from consultants, we have mining companies, we have people in academia who are all presenting on new topics and new research that they're finding within it. You know, why I was learning a little bit about soil mechanics, we used to always say like, in the sand, you really wouldn't get like a undrained response barring liquefaction, you know, obviously kind of like a really loosely placed sand. We're seeing through some research that, you know, we do get some pore pressure generation in these kind of sandier layers. So we are seeing kind of an undrained strength appear in some of these kind of sandier tailings layers. So going from saying something that is, is purely drained or it's going to rely on its drain strength to kind of understanding that, no, we will see a pore pressure response and we need to factor that into our analyses. The research is just getting better and better. And our understanding of this material is, is getting more up to date. So really trying to stay on top of everything coming out which is all, it's too much. You know, I tried to read papers as much as I can, but it's pretty tricky sometimes when, you know, people are publishing new stuff every day. I mean, it sounds like a lot of opportunity, especially for folks that are in school, working on a master's, thinking about doing a PhD. It sounds like there's a lot that you can focus in on and explore. So amid your journey, what are some of the pivotal lessons that you've learned from unforeseen challenges in TLA engineering projects and how these experiences influence your outlook on future undertakings. Coming from the foundations world, I mean, if you're designing a foundation, um, it can be incredibly tricky. You hope you make your design, you give your design to the contractor, to the client. Maybe you'll get a few phone calls. Obviously, you probably have someone there observing the installation of these foundations, but then you hope it's installed and you never hear about it again. Because if you never hear about it again, 
That means you probably did it right, or at least you didn't do it wrong. With these facilities, you know, it's really, you should look at them as big construction projects. These are ongoing 40-year, 50-year, in some cases, construction projects that are constantly being built. You know, we have deposition rates for these tailings facilities. So we generally know how much you're going to be putting into the impoundment and raising the embankment. Uh, we have a lot of numerical tools to analyze that. The biggest pivotal lesson I've learned is just always being on top of what is in the facility and what the material characteristics look like, what the pore pressure conditions look like at these facilities. And so that's why we have a lot of monitoring and instrumentation of these facilities and are constantly producing ports on just the pore pressures alone in these facilities. The challenge is you have a design and now you've actually, you know, this design's been based off some assumptions. You know, we have, you can take material characteristics from sites that are similar to your site from mills that you think will be producing tailings similar to what you think will be in your site. But generally, these are all assumptions based on active facilities. You hope kind of look like what you're going to get, but you don't know that until they actually start depositing. So I think one of the big challenges we face is, you know, really trying to comprehend what's actually going in the ground. And so we do that through ongoing investigations. We do that through constant monitoring and just trying to continuously update what we actually see within the facilities. Especially as geotechs, interdisciplinary collaboration is pivotal when you work on these complicated projects. And these projects are multifaceted just by nature. So how are you effectively collaborating with architects, structural engineers, and stakeholders to make sure that you have what's called a seamless project culmination? I've seen this in my work in my previous consultancy and obviously at AECOM, the scope of different faceted engineers and different architects, not so much architects on our point, but more geologists and project managers. The biggest thing, the biggest lesson I've learned since becoming an engineer, being an engineer is that um, really communication is key. You know, everyone will always tell you, you need to have the technical prowess, but really how you explain it, how you communicate that technical prowess or what you've accomplished through your technical analyses is a great way of having the client trust you, be on your side, and know that you're looking out for them. If you're constantly in a black box where they don't know what your information is, I mean, you're not going to have too great of relations with clients. Big lesson I learned was uh, when I went to grad school, I had to take some deficiency courses from, I didn't have an engineering degree. So I'd take a few undergraduate courses at School of Mines, and they were actually harder than some of my grad courses. I mean, you know, I got through them, but um, I think what I noticed was the undergraduate courses, there really was this focus on know-how, technical knowledge, um, really performing these kind of like deliverable tasks. Whereas the grad courses were mainly built upon, you know, here's your project, here's what you need to do, here's the research you need to undertake, and then you need to present it in a way that peers and your advisor and maybe a few other people who might sit in can understand. So, you know, an effective engineer is one that communicates their findings. If you are constantly checking in with different engineers who are working on projects, but maybe in different fields, it's incredibly important because then when you go to talk to the client, you can give them an update on this, the hydraulics are here, you know, the structural is here. And so it's really just keeping everyone in the loop, I think is the most important part when it comes to uh, project delivery. Talk a little bit about climate change. How do you factor in shifting environmental conditions when you're crafting tailings, engineering designs, and what type of strategies can be adopted to foster sustainability? Sustainability is super important, especially for the generation of engineers and practitioners coming out of school now. I guess that'd be kind of a threefold question. 
So the first part is, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying, we base a lot of our parameters and our design assumptions on probabilities. A lot of these dams are designed to withstand a certain amount of precipitation, a certain amount of flood based on, you know, different events that we've calculated in the past and what we foresee in the future. With climate change, it makes it a bit harder when, you know, our climate and weather models are changing every day. You know, obviously we try to compensate for that by writing a bunch of sensitivity analyses, designing it for really extreme events. You don't see it so much, you know, luckily earthquakes, hopefully knock on wood won't change because of climate change, but precipitation events will. So trying to kind of wrap your head around the just the ever-changing nature and kind of the uncertainty as we move forward with climate change. Moving past that, the second thing, you know, is if we're going to fight climate change, there's a big push in the mining industry is we do have to mine a lot. If we are to continue down how we're trying to revolutionize the electrical grid, so whether it be copper, whether it be gold, whether it be any sort of kind of critical mineral, we have to mine a lot. And if we have to mine a lot, we produce a lot of tailings. I heard a good quote that mines don't produce ore, mines produce tailings. Most of our ore bodies are, you know, we hope to get as much out of it as we can, but for the most part, they're going to go into a TSF. So understanding that, you know, our deposition rates on a lot of these uh, tailings facilities are going to be much higher than what we had previously seen. So there's also a big push and depending on what the facility, you know, how it's constructed is to kind of immediately reclaim the facility. So some upstream facilities, you can do reclamation in place as we are actively depositing on these facilities. We are also reclaiming it through use of native vegetation, which not only, you know, looks nicer and is better for the environment, it also kind of improves the stability of the slope itself, you know, by anchoring the slope through other sustainable practices, such as, you know, maintaining, keeping water from going in, keeping, you know, trying to recycle as much water within these TSFs to use as the process water within the mill. I mean, some of the reclamation efforts I've seen are, are mind blowing. There was a, one of the inactive facilities we were looking at. If you were to drive out there and have no idea what a tailings facility looked like, you would just think these are rolling hills, which I mean, that's the end goal, you know, obviously tailings take up a huge amount of land and they inundate a large amount of land with the leftover mine materials. But we can make it so, yeah, we do have to take up this land, but hopefully when this facility is done, we can return it back to the environment and let it become part of the natural environment again. Let's talk a little bit about AECOM. AECOM is world-renowned for extensive global endeavors. And in your experience, what kind of cornerstones contribute to the prosperous execution of these projects, especially in diverse regions? Like I was talking about being blown away by the scale of these TSFs. When I first started AECOM, I was blown away by the amount of PhDs that we had within our firm. It's a little intimidating. You know, I was coming from a bit of a smaller consultant firm, you know, still very good, has their expertise in what they do. But, you know, AECOM, you know, it's a big company. But the thing is with this big company, they really do know how to kind of boil it down on the micro level. So although you feel, you know, you know, you're working at this big publicly traded firm, I feel like I'm working in a small consultancy within the mighty group at AECOM. You get all the benefits of working at a global firm. So we have this global reach. If we don't have an expert in our office in Denver, we can pull someone, you know, I, I work with people who work in Spain, you know, we have contracts all across the globe and we have employees all across the globe too. So really we can lean on these experts. Some of our TSF designs are a huge portion of the project is going to be electrical design. So, you know, getting the actual electricity up to the TSF. I don't know anything about electrical engineering, but I know a lot of my colleagues know way more. We can pass it work right off to them and we can, you know, 
give that deliverable to the client. I think why we keep you know having the same clients, why we get these recurring clients is they know we're a one-stop shop for all things engineering, not only geotech, but structural, electrical. Shoot, I think we even have an aviation department. We have all sorts of facets that I don't even know the extent of. And it always amazes me every time I look through publications coming out by our company, just the products and the general projects that we work on. What advice would you give to young professionals looking to enter the field of geotechnical engineering, especially those that uh, want to pursue a career in tailings management? I think it's a great field. I think it's really evolving. I think it's on the cutting edge of a lot of geotechnical engineering. You know, it takes from the ideas of classical soil mechanics, but it really expands on it and is niche. You know, you have to make sure if you want to get into tailings, you do really like it. But uh, it's a really exciting field and it's really something we're putting a lot of focus on. I heard a quote, from, I think it was the CEO of Barrick, and he said, you know, tailings are the number one issue facing the mining industry. So mining companies, uh, industry, and academia all understand the gravity of these facilities, the big, huge unknowns that a lot of these facilities face. So there's been a lot of resources and a lot of projects that have been put forth to really fully understand these materials. And if you want to understand soil mechanics like you've never understood it before, come to Tailings Engineering, and I think you'll have a pretty good career. And before we take our break, when you look at the future of geotechnical engineering, what are some of the emerging trends and advances that you believe will have a significant impact on the industry? And how are you preparing to adapt to these changes? This kind of goes back to the ongoing nature of these projects and updating the constant updating of material characterization, parameters, poor pressure conditions. You know, I think we're really going to start moving towards uh, digital twins of these facilities. So really trying to have a numerical model, whether it be set up in you know, Plaxis or Plaq or however you want to do it. Actually, Plaxis is quite a good tool for that to um, really have not only your TSF sitting on, you know, outside of its mind, but also have that TSF sitting on your computer. So when you want to you know, analyze certain events, you can just do it right from your desktop. That takes a large amount of calibration. That takes a large amount of investigation and data. But we're really pushing towards that. And the different members of my group, we members of my team at AECOM recently published a great paper on performance-based design. Went a little bit into digital twins. Um, basically, it was this constant updating of material parameters for just what we see out of the facilities currently. And so trying to construct these digital twins, I really see as a move forward so that we can you know, fully understand the conditions out on these sites. We'll come back in just a minute and close this one out. And Sam and our Career Factor Safety End segment, stick around. All right, welcome back. It's time for our Career Factor Safety End segment. In geotechnical engineering, just like many disciplines of engineering, it's important to have a factor of safety into your design. But what about incorporating a factor of safety into your career? Today, of course, we're speaking with Sam Rumel, PE and PG of Geotechnical Engineer at AECOM. So Sam, you've had a very successful career. When you look back in your career, what's something that you've implemented in your career to give yourself, let's call it a factor of safety in your career? The biggest thing I always try to do is always try to put my hand up when I have a chance. If I have the time, if I have the availability and someone needs some help, you know, I always try to help out colleagues when they may need it because, you know, we're all on the same team together. So not only does this, you know, make you someone who's really reliable and valuable to your team 
and to other engineers around you, but it also exposes you to a lot of new ideas and a lot of maybe new analyses or techniques that you had not been familiar with before. So not only does this improve you as an engineer, but it might also expose you to something that you really enjoyed doing. I'd never done a site response, a 2D site response. I thought, you know, Flack was really scary and, you know, all this numerical computation was a little out of my league. But, you know, on this previous project, I talked about with the inactive facilities. Yeah, I decided to take it on and I realized I really enjoyed it. It might have taken me a little bit more time than maybe someone who's quite pro at it, but constantly understanding that your knowledge as an engineer doesn't end when you get out of school and that your knowledge needs to keep growing as you work throughout your career. I think that's a good way to build a factor of safety into your career. Thanks, Sam, for coming on. You shared a lot of great insights, and I know that this is going to be information that's going to be helpful for those that are viewing and listening. How could somebody find you? You want to share your email address or are you on social media? Feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's just Sam Rommel, P-E-P-G. If you just type them into LinkedIn, you can also email me at sam.rommel, R-U-M-E-L, at aecom.com. Either way, I always look forward to hearing from people, whether it be on LinkedIn or whether it be through email. So feel free to reach out to me. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Jared. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We would love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please feel free to go to geotechnicalengineeringpodcast.com where you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, that being episode 86, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Until next time, I wish you the very best in all of your geotechnical engineering endeavors. Peace. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? And how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term? You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.com dot org.